Well, welcome. Great to see everybody on this beautiful Colorado September day. Uh, such great weather. We pulled up this morning about 8 to, for worship practice, and the doors were open. The band was already singing, and you pull into the parking lot and singing praises to God. I just felt like I had arrived in glory, you know. And then you stop and think, and you realize glory is going to be exponentially better than that. So. You ever look around at the mountains here in Colorado and think, oh, this is so beauty, the heavens declare the glory of God, but then you realize this is God's creation after the curse of sin. I mean, this isn't even close to what it looked like before the fall of man. It was way be more beautiful. Of course, the Rocky Mountains weren't there before the fall of sin, but anyway. Um, well, awesome. Well, let's uh, continue our look at what lies ahead. Uh, we have been kind of camped out in the tribulation. Uh, for the last uh, several weeks, and uh, we want to continue that. But what I'd like to do for the next few weeks is just sort of march through that seven-year period and take a look at some of the things that happen uh, during that time. In particular, we're looking at, at it through the lens of God's judgments, the seal, trumpet, and bowl judgments. Uh, we've talked quite a bit about uh, the... Uh, tribulation. We, we recognize that it represents this seven-year period in God's plan of the ages, the 70th week of Daniel. Remember, we had a whole lesson on uh, the Shabuah, the, the Hebrew word for week or seven-year period. Uh, if you're just kind of joined in recent weeks uh, and you'd like to go back and look for that, if you go to notbyworks.org and just click on videos and then under the videos there's a subheading, What Lies Ahead? All 30, you know, one after today of those messages are there. You can kind of find the one on Daniel's 70th week. Uh, but we've kind of established that obviously this seven-year period is the completion of, of God's prophecy to Daniel, the 490-year prophecy. We've established that it is uh, the wrath of God being poured out on the earth. We've looked at the Old Testament and New Testament characterizations of the tribulation. And one of the challenges of teaching the Word of God in this age in which we live where people are uh, online a lot and there's all kinds of online presence, whether that's live streaming like those that are watching today or later watching the video, is you, you constantly are picking up new people. And I always feel uh, a little concerned that someone's going to jump in in the middle and, 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 and not necessarily agree with some of the conclusions we've reached. And that's why I always remind people, go back and you know, watch the whole series or at least watch some of the key videos to, to give us the opportunity to make the case biblically. doesn't necessarily mean you'll <coughs> still agree <coughs> or guaranteed to agree with our conclusions, but uh, there are those out there that don't believe, for example, that the rapture is going to happen prior to the tribulation. And I just want to make it clear that we're not just sort of declaring that as if it's a given. We've tried to make the case biblically that that's what God's Word teaches. Uh, and uh, I think if you come at the Word of God consistently from a literal, grammatical, historical perspective, letting the text speak for itself, understanding it in its historical context, that's the only conclusion uh, that you can reach. So, uh, so for the next few weeks, we're going to, based on that premise, kind of walk through the types of things that will happen on earth after the rapture. Uh, between the rapture and the, second, and the uh, start of the tribulation, as you see there, there's a period of preparation of unknown length according to uh, scripture that's because the rapture and the signing of the peace treaty that starts the clock ticking on that final seven year period are not the same event and if they're two separate events by definition you have to have some length of time between them 
and uh, we've speculated that that's probably going to be several months, but we really don't know. Uh, but we, uh, we're going to talk this morning about some things that uh, I believe will happen in that time period. And while we can be uh, dogmatic about the sequence of events based on God's Word, there are some things that we can't be dogmatic about, and so I'll always try to tell you when I'm speculating and where other people might say, well, I put this event someplace different. But in terms of the big picture and the big roadmap that you see on the screen there, this is all pretty well documented in God's Word. So we're going to be kind of focusing on this period of time here this morning. Uh, my goal today for this morning is to get through the, the few things that happen in that period of time and then look at the seal judgments. Uh, and, and I'm probably optimistic, but if we could get through all the seal judgments, then next week we'll look at the trumpets and possibly the bowls. Uh, but if not, well, this is, there's no agenda here, and I want you to feel free to ask questions. Um, we, uh, we will have a Q&A at the end a little bit. We'll say five minutes or so, maybe ten, uh, for some questions. But if you have a pressing question or if, I, if something's unclear, don't hesitate to raise your hand in this session. This is more of an interactive, informal. We don't have a particular agenda like we do on, on Wednesday nights. <clears throat> so, uh, by the way, I guess I'll go ahead and announce... Um, what my plan is for Wednesday nights. I've been praying about this this past week in preparing my message for the service this morning, which is going to be from Psalm 119 in our series through Psalms. I really felt led to kind of shift directions Wednesday. So this coming Wednesday is going to be our last session in the what in the world is going on, and I'm going to cover why does all this matter. So it'll be our eighth session We've covered a lot of ground. We've talked about a lot of information. It's pretty heavy stuff. Uh, and I don't know about you, but for me, as I've studied and taught on those types of things for 15 years, I find that it kind of ebbs and flows for me. I can really en enmesh myself in it, really study it, and spend hours each week preparing and writing and, and, and speaking about it. But after so long, I just need to kind of step back because it gets heavy, and it's, it's really tough. So that's kind of where I'm at on that. So we're going to finish that up for now this coming Wednesday with part eight of what in the world is going on. And it will cover why does all of this matter. And, uh, and then, uh, and this is the big announcement, the next Wednesday we're going to start a new series where I'm going to cover how to read and understand the Bible. How to read and understand the Bible. It's basically going to be a Bible study methods material, uh, which I've taught in, in an academic setting for many years. But I'm going to try to really make it practical. So we're going to talk about you know, how we got our Bible, what the Bible is. Um, uh, how, and, and that was sort of spawned by my study this week of, of God's Word and, and the importance of God's Word in Psalm 119. And I feel like uh, more than ever before, we need to know how to correctly handle the Word of God. And, uh, and so that's what we're going to spend several weeks on. It'll take us through the end of the year, undoubtedly. So I hope that uh, those of you that come or watch on Wednesday nights will keep watching. I know it's not as you know, edgy of a topic as what we've covered in some, you know, recently, uh, but it's a very important topic because the Word of God gives us everything we need for life and godliness. It's our only standard for beliefs, attitudes, and practices. And as we watch all of these things that we've talked about in what in the world is going on, Unfold. We need to, to know where our anchor is and our sure, uh, you know, sure footing is. Uh, so I just wanted to kind of throw that out there. That's uh, so. This Wednesday we'll we'll do what in the world's going on part eight, and then we'll shift into a how to read and understand the Bible correctly. 
So as we look at this preparation period, uh, I have uh, at the back of my book, What Lies Ahead, an appendix called Sequential Order of End Times Events. The first item on that list is the rapture because that's the next great prophetic event. But then uh, these three events begin to unfold in that uh, preparation time prior to the official start uh, of the tribulation. And the first thing that I believe happens is a Western alliance led by the future Antichrist forms and invades Egypt. And we get this from Daniel chapter 11. At, at the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him. Him here in the context is the Antichrist, the future Antichrist. And the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots, horsemen, and with many ships. And he shall enter the countries, overwhelm them, and pass through. This is talking about the, anti, the guy that will become the Antichrist, this western force of uh, nations and, and, and armies. He shall also enter the glorious land... Don't you love that phrase for Jerusalem? And many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape from his hand. Edom, Moab, and the prominent people of Ammon, he shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall have power over the treasures of gold and silver and over all the precious things of Egypt. Also the Libyans and Ethiopians shall follow at his heels. Now watch this. But news from the east and the north shall trouble him. In other words, rumors of enemies from the east and the north are going to cause the, this future antichrist, this future world leader, to kill more people. It says, therefore he shall go out with great fury to destroy and annihilate many. He shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Uh, that's uh, talking about how his headquarters are going to be in Jerusalem. And uh, the NIV actually translates this at the beautiful holy mountain, which is, again, a reference to Jerusalem and Mount Moriah. So it's there that he's going to meet his match and suffer defeat. And later, Revelation says that Jesus Christ will return from heaven and destroy him. So this is all preparatory to the official tribulation. But, of course, by the end of the seven-year tribulation, the Antichrist is going to lose at the Battle of Armageddon uh, and he will be uh, banished to the lake of fire, he and the false prophet. So that Western alliance forms, and then that leads to the battle of Gog and Magog in Ezekiel 38 and 39. So we see in Ezekiel 38, uh, Son of man, set your face against Gog and of the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshech, and Tubal, and prophesy against him. So Gog is the name of the ruler, or the title of the ruler, who will emerge in history uh, while Israel is dwelling uh, safely in her land, and, and then uh, uh, Magog is the uh, area of what is today Ma uh, southern Russia, in that general region. So if you look at the players in this battle, it's Persia, Ethiopia, and Put, Gomer, and Togarma. And if we, of course, if we kind of overlay that geography into modern times, if, for example, if the rapture were to happen today or in our lifetime, and these things that we're talking about were to then begin to unfold, we'd be talking about Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, and uh, Syria. Now, if you look at those nations across the bottom of the screen there, do any of those names sound familiar? <laughs> I mean, they're all over the news right now, which is one of the many reasons we believe that the stage is being set. Um, uh, you know, you see, uh, 
you know, you see all kinds of things in the news. So this is what it would look like in terms of a geographic region as the Battle of Gog and Magog and they're coming against uh, Israel. Uh, but you see all kinds of things in, in the news. Here's, uh, you know, two of the prominent nations mentioned in this prophecy, Russia and Iran. They're getting pretty chummy these days. And so let's talk about this Battle of Gog and Magog. And again, I see this as a kind of an offshoot of what Daniel 11 was talking about as nations from the north are coming against Israel, nations from the west come in, and then this battle ensues, and God supernaturally, as we're going to see in a second, protects Israel, but that western alliance, whom, I, whom I'm suggesting is led by the future Antichrist, takes credit for winning the battle and solving this conflict, and that propels uh, the Antichrist into world fame, and he is then uh, you know, basically credited uh, with solving the Middle East crisis and signing, uh, orchestrating the signing of this peace treaty. And that's what starts the clock ticking on this final uh, seven-year period. Now, uh, some Bible scholars who are like-minded, who agree in the overall plan of the ages as revealed in Scripture, uh, put the Battle of Gog and Magog in different places. Um, and uh, I respect them and respect their view, but I think the best view is that it happens here prior to uh, the start of the tribulation. Um, the reason I believe that is that if, if you were to put it in the first half of the tribulation, you'll notice we know from Scripture that that first half, after the treaty is signed, represent three and a half years of protection for Israel you know, nationally. And we talked about this, I think, I don't know if it was last week or recently, that by protection we're not suggesting there wasn't devastation and all kinds of things happening on earth. We're about to look at some of those with the seal uh, judgments. But we're just saying from a national perspective, the Antichrist and his regime were not turning their wrath on the nation of Israel. They were, you know, in good standing with Israel. There was no conflict or battle. So that being the case, it seems difficult to see how during that period of time uh, there would be nations coming against Israel in this big kind of battle. So that's why I don't really see how we can put the Battle of Gog and Magog inside the tribulation in the first half. Some people put it in the second half. Um, but again, the problem with that is if you read the description of the Battle of Gog and Magog, and I'm about to give you some overview of that, we know that ultimately God protects them and they win the battle, whereas the description in God's word of what happens in the second half of the tribulation is Israel is very much victimized and they're having to head for the hills and flee for their lives and they're being persecuted right and left and it doesn't seem consistent with a period of time when Israel would win this big battle and everybody would be you know excited and, and, and cheering the fact that Israel won you know so I just feel like it's hard to find a good spot to put this battle within the tribulation um, if, if in, in, a, in my book I, taught, I gave, I think, eight or seven or eight views of when the Battle of Gog and Magog is, and I decided not to go through each one of those just because that's a little bit granular, and if I can just kind of give you some highlights and be honest that, that some people don't agree with my estimation of, of the Battle of Gog and Magog going where I've got it. Um, so another one that you'll come across is some people put the Battle of Gog and Magog before the rapture. So I know I'm going to be off camera, but so they would put it in the church age. 
And so if you read the uh, Left Behind series by LaHaye and Jenkins, that's the way they have it unfolding. Although, as I think I've mentioned, uh, Tim LaHaye did not believe that. He believed it happens where I and many others believe it happens after the rapture. But for rhetorical effect and so forth, they, they put it before the rapture. But a lot of people do believe that. So you'll hear some Bible teachers teaching about Bible prophecy uh, making a big deal about the things that are happening in the world and the geopolitical events, kind of like I did uh, over here with these nations. But they're doing it in the context of, see, the Battle of Gog and Magog is about to happen, and they think it could happen before uh, the rapture. But the problem with that is it, it really has uh, significant implications for the doctrine of imminency. And the Bible very clearly teaches that the rapture is imminent, meaning it could happen at any time. There is no prophecy that has to happen before the rapture. Um, and that's the reason we put it first in our list of sequential events. So if you've got a major world event, as described in Ezekiel 38 and 39, that happens before the rapture, well then, uh, if that's your view, we could wake up every day and say, hypothetically, well, we know the rapture won't happen today, because there's nothing happening in the earth that resembles the battle of Gog and Magog. So it, it makes imminency an impossibility. Uh, and yet, you know, some people still uh, hold to that view, and, they're in, in, and again, I want to be fair to them, their answer to that objection um, is that they say it doesn't destroy imminency if you don't know that it's going to happen before that. If, in other words, if it doesn't have to happen. So their thing is, if you're looking back after the rapture on, in the annals of history and you see this event that happened before the rapture, um, you say that's the Battle of Gog and Magog, but you didn't really know it at the time. So that every day you're still waking up thinking the rapture could happen today, the rapture could happen today. But, you know, I understand that logic. I just, I think the, the nature and characteristics of the Battle of Gog and Magog are so significant that you can't miss it. So, like... If you think it's going to happen before the rapture, there, you know, there's nothing going on today that if the rapture were to happen today, we could look back later and say, oh, okay, that, so that was Gog and Magog, right? You see my point? So, again, uh, different views on this. I wouldn't die on this hill by any stretch, but I think it makes the most sense both biblically and logically. And while we're on the subject of imminency, I wanted to uh, mention... I get tons of email, as you, as I've mentioned, as you may know, and so I got a great question along those lines from someone asking about, in the first century, uh, there were a couple of events that were prophesied that did happen before the rapture. One of those is the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD, uh, and another one, which this uh, email person, uh, listener, didn't bring up, but I brought up in my response to him, is the fact that Peter was promised that he would live to a ripe old age. Remember that? And so sometimes people will ask me, well, if the rapture's been imminent since it was revealed by God through Paul in 1 Thessalonians in 51 AD, and yet the, trip, the uh, destruction of the temple didn't happen until 70 AD, could the rapture have happened in there? And the answer to that is, during the apostolic age, when the Bible... Can you hand me my Bible? I might need it. I mean, I've got it all memorized, but, you know, you never know. I might need it. Um, no, uh, if... When the Bible was still being written, 
God was still unveiling himself through the pen of the human authors in the first century. There are a lot of transitional things happening. <clears throat> and indeed, even the doctrine of the rapture was still being clarified. You know, Jesus referenced it in the upper room. That was the first time it had ever been mentioned. And then Paul begins to teach about it in his first letter to the Thessalonians in 51. And he also references it in 2 Thessalonians. And then in 1 Corinthians, which was 56, 57. So as God was unveiling more, this, this doctrine was taking shape. So I don't see, once the Bible is complete by the end of the first century, and we have the sum total of God's revelation, and we have the plan clearly outlined, I don't see how after that you can have any prophecy happening before the rapture. So that's, that's the answer to that question, is that during the apostolic age, yeah, there was some cloudiness and haziness on it, but once it was all settled, the doctrine of imminency kind of kicks in, and now we can say with confidence that there are no prophecies yet to be fulfilled that will occur before the rapture. So, And we have a video on that at NotByWorks.org called The Doctrine of Eminency if, if you want to study that further. So I've kind of explained how the Battle of Gog and Magog, in some people's account, happens at different places. I believe it happens during this preparation period. And let's take a look at what I think is going to unfold. So a northern alliance forms, as we've described, from uh, these uh, countries. They ally themselves with the south. And then, uh, and that's uh, Russia, and then you know Iran, Sudan, Libya, Turkey, Syria, and so on. They uh, invade Israel, and you see that in verse 16. But this Western alliance that we've already talked about, who I believe is headed by the future Antichrist, protests, intervenes, and then God, as this battle is taking shape, you know the nations coming against Israel, and then this Western alliance coming in as well, and uh, gives Israel the victory. And it's a supernatural victory. Uh, we're not going to read through the entire chapters 38 and 39, but it, you see amazing uh, things as God is just supernaturally coming to Israel's defense and protecting them. But the uh, Antichrist kind of takes the credit for that, and this gives him worldwide notoriety. And then the next thing that happens, so you've got this Western Alliance beginning to form, the Northern Alliance at the Battle of Gog and Magog comes in, everything's kind of centered in Israel, the Western Alliance takes credit for God protecting Israel, and then that propels the Antichrist to a place where he can sign the peace treaty, which is what unveils him, meaning that's what allows him to be identified. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. Um, I would I think it would be during that battle before the peace treaty is signed. Because, again, you know, Gog and Magog is the aggressor trying to overtake the Holy Land. And, you know, that Holy Land is, is high-value target for since time began. I mean, everything centers there. And so all these religions and um, plus there's value value in the land itself so i think uh that probably and i'd have to go back and look at specific texts you know passages but i think the picture that 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 ezekiel 38 and 39 paints is that that those nations that tried to come against israel are destroyed they're absolutely defeated um the western alliance is really kind of just standing by and they, there's some things that happen according to daniel we read it but ultimately they don't do much, and God 
is the one who wins the victory. But so good question. That's the destruction of Damascus. Now I, I like to always uh, point out that we we use the the phrase the unveiling of the Antichrist in two different ways. Um, on the one hand, from God's plan of the ages, which you see here. Uh, the Antichrist will be identified from those who sort of have a biblical understanding and are looking at things as they unfold the moment the peace treaty is signed. At that point, we can say that's the guy, right? Uh, and he sets himself up as a world leader. He's ruling in tyranny for seven years. But from the world's perspective of those left behind that are living this and that are on earth at the time, he won't be unveiled, that is, you know, exposed, if you will, until the midpoint here, the abomination of desolation, uh, oops, the abomination of desolation, when he breaks the treaty, uh, demands that everybody enters the temple, takes the throne, and demands that the whole world worship him as God, sets himself up as God, Paul tells us. So, you know, I'm not sure that in real time, a lot of people on earth, certainly not unbelievers, uh, will recognize that the Antichrist has been unveiled. Uh, but by the midpoint, they will. And at that point, uh, both believers, uh, as the ones Jesus is talking to in the Olivet Discourse, uh, I mean, he's talking to unbelievers and believers, but he's telling the believers in Matthew 24 that when you see that event happen, you know it's about to get really tough, and you need to, to head for the hills, and you need to hide out. Remember he said, pray that it's not in winter when this happens, because it's going to be harder to you know, climb mountains, and we know a thing or two about that in Colorado. There are whole mountain passes and national park, you know, trails that are closed in the winter because they have too much snow, and um, it's much easier to go hiking in the summer, right, than it is in the winter. And so, and Jesus says, make you know, pray that you're not pregnant because that would make it even harder to to flee. So, so both unbelievers and believers alike at that point will begin to say, this guy is not who we, th we thought he was. He's not our world savior who solved the Middle East peace problem and, and has you know, ushered in a time of world uh, peace. Now remember, another thing that's going to be happening, and there are, by the way, some correlations to what we see happening in the world today, although only not as severe, obviously. But the whole world is going to be under the wrath of God and facing devastation as we're about to see from the judgments of God and the Antichrist himself is going to be having a nefarious malevolent uh, agenda as, as he's competing in this cosmic struggle the final battle of the ages leading up to Armageddon so it's going to be a time like no other the world as we know it will, will be over but uh, this Antichrist will be looked to by the world everyone throughout the globe as this leader who's, who's guiding us and leading us through these crazy times. You know, they may be claiming that it's an alien invasion or they may be, you know, all kinds of excuses and deceptions. Remember, Jesus repeatedly warns against deception during that final seven-year period in the Olivet Discourse. It's, it's deception's going to reach unprecedented heights. So it will be not a normal the way we've come to uh, see norm, norm, normalcy. But it will still be a time of world peace in that sense. Uh, and uh, so the Antichrist will kind of identify himself, as it were, with the signing of the peace treaty. But by the midpoint, everyone begins to realize 
they may not know the name Antichrist if they've never studied the Bible. They may not see clearly the way we do from Scripture what's happening, but they're going to know the guy they thought was a good leader navigating the world through this unprecedented time turns out to be a pretty evil guy. That's what they're going to figure out. So uh, let's talk about the unveiling of the Antichrist for a bit. Um, in, in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 is a great passage that talks about this. So uh, remember in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, Paul has, under the inspiration of the Spirit, uh, explained the rapture. Uh, and he, he remember he says, I, I don't want you to sorrow as those who have no hope. Uh, you know, the dead in Christ will rise first, and we who are alive and remain will be caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. And that phrase, caught up, is the Greek word harpazo, translated in the Latin version of the Bible by Jerome as rapire, or rapture, so that's where the word rapture comes from, is 1 Thessalonians 4. But then he writes another letter, and he readdresses this issue, because evidently some false teachers had come in and tried to suggest uh, to those in Thessalonica, those believers, that they'd been left behind, that the rapture had already happened, that what Paul had talked about had already taken place. And so he says, Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, clearly a description of the rapture, at the second coming, there's not a gathering together uh, of, to the Lord in the air. The Lord comes all the way to the earth, takes the throne, and rules the world. But he says concerning that, so concerning the rapture, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled either by spirit or by word or by letter as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. So day of Christ, there some manuscripts say day of the Lord. It's a reference to the judgment, the time of judgment that comes after the rapture. So in other words, they were being told they were already in this day of the Lord. They were already in this tribulation period that the prophecies of old about the great day of the Lord's wrath and the overflowing scourge and that 70th week of Daniel had already happened and where they were in the midst of it uh, because remember persecution was beginning to intensify church has only been around 20 years at that point and yet they were already seeing some persecution so someone for whatever reason had either written a letter claiming it was from Paul or it began circulating uh, misinformation saying, oh, man, you guys, this is it. We're facing the judgment. This is what the Old Testament prophets talked about. We're in the day of the Lord. Um, and so he says, well, let no one deceive you by any means. For that day will not come unless two things happen first. And if those two things haven't happened, then you know you cannot be in the day of the Lord. Now, the first one, he says, is the falling away which is the way every English translation translates that, but it didn't start being translated that way or thought of that way in, even in Greek manuscripts of old uh, until fairly recently in human history. It's one word in Greek, apostasia is the Greek word. If you were to look up apostasia in a Greek dictionary, you'd see the, the lexical meaning is departure. That's what apostasia means, departure. Uh, it always has to be, like all words, defined in its context, and departure can mean a physical departure, like a ship leaving a dock, or armies leaving and marching out to war, or moving from point A to point B geographically, but it can also be used as a metaphor of a spiritual departure from the faith. And unfortunately, most of our modern English translations assume 
that, uh, Paul, that Paul is talking here about a spiritual falling away. There are several problems with that view. First of all, it ignores the context here where we've been talking about a physical departure. He starts out in the very previous sentence concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our departing to meet him, right? And in 1 Thessalonians, it's all about the departure from being caught up to meet the Lord in the air, departing this earth. So it ignores the immediate context, but also it really creates a, a, a very vague and intangible standard because there is always, at any given time throughout church history, spiritual apostasy. You see that all the time. We see it now. And if God's word is saying here that, you know, if you see a spiritual apostasy, then you've missed the rapture, how could we really ever know? I mean, it's too subjective. There's no way to quantify a spiritual apostasy. But you can certainly quantify the rapture. And so basically what he's saying here is, let no one deceive you by any means. And then basically, as I've told you, in fact, he's about to say that in the next uh, couple of sentences here. He's going to say, didn't I already tell you these things? Uh, but he says, let no one deceive you. That day cannot come unless the departure has happened and the man of sin, which is Paul's word for the Antichrist, has been revealed. Well, that fits perfectly with what we see in Bible prophecy. The rapture happens, then the man of sin is revealed, then the day of the Lord takes place. You can't have the day of the Lord unless those two things have happened. And so Paul's just trying to encourage them, look, you know, this day, you cannot be in the day of the Lord unless the departure has happened and the man of sin has been revealed. Um, and I know that may be new uh, understanding of this passage for uh, many people, but remember, studying the Word is a lifelong process, and you don't. sometimes we latch on to views that someone taught 30 years ago, and we just assume them to be accurate. You always want to come at the Word of God with a clean slate and open mind and, and let the text speak where it speaks. And the Bible was not written in English, and Paul did not say there would be a falling away. He said there would be a departure. What kind of departure? I think he's talking about the rapture. And if you're interested in uh, researching that more. I have a journal article that where I really make the case over several pages and, and talk about some historical usages of the word and so forth. But anyway, assuming then that, that my understanding of this passage is correct, Paul is saying, don't be deceived. You can't be in the day of the Lord because the rapture and the uh, unveiling of the Antichrist haven't occurred yet. He then goes on to clarify who the man of sin is. It's the son of perdition, the one who's going to ex exalt himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he even sits as God in the temple showing himself that he is God. A complete description of the abomination of desolation that Daniel and Jesus uh, talked about. And then he goes on to say, don't you remember that when I was with you I told you these things? And again, you see another reference to a physical departure as he says, now you know that what is restraining, now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. And, and what's he talking about? What is restraining there? He's talking about because the church is present in this present age and the Holy Spirit permanently indwells believers and is working in and through believers on the earth, that constitutes a restraining influence on sin and evil and all of that. I've talked about this elsewhere in my uh, presentation on one minute after the rapture, but uh, this isn't talking about the Holy Spirit's 
you know, being taken away. Because uh, he goes on to say, the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Remember, the spirit of the Antichrist is already at work. We talked about that a lot last fall. Uh, but he who restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit's going to be banished from the earth because the Holy Spirit is God. God is om omnipresent. Uh, God eternally exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. The Holy, there's no place that God cannot be. What he means is he's taken out of the way at the departure, the apostasia, at the rapture, in the sense of his restraining influence in and through the church is removed. He himself will still be on the earth, calling, convicting people of sin, calling people to faith, and so forth. But right now, the church, the body of Christ, constitutes a restraining influence that once it's removed, then the Antichrist will be unveiled and all hell will break loose. Yeah? I'm just noticing that he is capitalized in both places, mm -hmm. which usually means you're talking about God. About God. Which is, and you're saying this is a misunderstanding that you're really talking about the believers in whom God is dwelling. Yeah, it's not a misunderstanding. I think it's correctly capitalized there. It's talking about the Holy Spirit. I'm just saying that when it says he is taken out of the way, it doesn't. we have to compare Scripture with Scripture. It doesn't mean there's a place where the Holy Spirit does not exist. The Holy Spirit's omnipotent. Mm -hmm. What I'm saying is that's a characterization of his restraining influence is removed. So you've got, you can't oversimplify it. You can't just say, oh, it says he's taken out of the way. It must mean the Holy Spirit's gone from the earth because that would contradict Scripture elsewhere that says there's, he is everywhere at all times. Yeah, it's the pronoun. It's there, and and it's capitalized in the translation because, and I believe correctly, because it's a reference to God, the Holy Spirit. But in the context here, he's saying, "Look, you know, don't you remember when I was with you? I told these things. What things? That the rapture is going to happen, and then the Antichrist is going to be unveiled." But he says, "So you're not in the day of the Lord, because right now, present time, in from their perspective, and it's still true today." Uh, you know what is restraining. What, so that's a impersonal pronoun. What is restraining is the church and the Holy Spirit's influence through the church is restraining and, and that he may be revealed, the Antichrist may be revealed in his own time. In other words, Paul's saying it wasn't time yet. The Antichrist has not been revealed. Remember what he said. Uh, you cannot be in the day of the Lord unless the man of sin has been revealed. Well, he hasn't been revealed. He will be revealed in his own time. Uh, but he, then he goes on to say, Now the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And he, the Holy Spirit, is restraining and will continue to do so until he's taken out of the way. That is, his restraining influence is taken out of the way. Uh, doesn't mean he won't be on the earth. Because he's God, there's no place he cannot be. He, you know... Um, Paul, or I mean, David talks about that. Where can I go from your presence? You know, in the temples and here and there, wherever I go, there you are, right? So I, I, I think uh, the, the misunderstanding, as you uh, point out, comes when people oversimplify that last phrase. It happens to be on the last line on the slide there and say it means the Holy Spirit's going to be removed. And I just always like to clarify it's not the Holy Spirit being removed, it's the Holy Spirit's influence through the church that's removed. And so, and then, once that happens, again, you see all these references through the context here to a physical departure. So once the Holy Spirit's influence is taken out of the way, that is, through the rapture, then the lawless one will be revealed. 
whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. And he goes on to say, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders, with all unrighteous deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So as with every place else in Scripture, here you see the clear one and only standard for eternal life and forgiveness of sins is believe. Believe, believe. If you don't believe, if you reject the free gift, you choose not to accept it by faith, then you're going to face eternal judgment. So, uh, you know, I went through that passage in Second Thessalonians because, you know, we're talking about the unveiling of the Antichrist, and Paul references that, the revealing of the Antichrist, several times through uh, that passage. So, I was obviously way too optimistic about how far we would get because we're not even going to get to the first of the seal judgments, but that's okay. Uh, by, by at this point now, we've gotten up to that signing of that peace treaty, and now we're going to see what happens uh, during the tribulation. So we'll pick up there next week, but I do want to allow, we've got about three or four minutes here to see if anybody else has uh, questions you'd like to ask. Yeah. Yeah, so the phrase, God will send them strong delusion, that's the question. Uh, that's been variously interpreted. Some people say that those who did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved refers to anyone who rejected the gospel prior to the rapture. And then they would then say that for this reason, because they didn't believe the gospel, before, they won't have an opportunity to believe it after the rapture. I don't take it that way. I think he's just saying that anybody who rejects the gospel is going to be you know, blinded and not be able to. It's kind of like the, the unpardonable sin. It's like we don't, you know, the, un, the believers cannot commit the unpardonable sin. It's only unbelievers. And theologically speaking, the unpardonable sin is, is you could say, you know, looking back from hell to the perspective of anyone who's in hell, the last time they heard and rejected the gospel, that was it. That was their the end of the time. So I just think he's making a general statement here that there's going to come a time when someone rejects the gospel for the last time. And at that point, they've, they've passed the point of no return. Interesting. Yeah. It, 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 as far as, is that at the end of the seven-year period? Or I, I think it's, it, in, it's different for each person. I think it's different for each person. There may be someone here or someone watching the live stream who's never trusted in Christ alone as their Savior. And right now, we're imploring you, believe the gospel, trust in Jesus, and he's the only way for eternal life. And if they reject it and drop dead of a heart attack five minutes later, that's it. They're, they're done. So um, I do believe that people could hypothetically be saved after the rapture uh, by, by believing the gospel. Um, I think it's going to be much harder. I mean, if they rejected the gospel now, just imagine how hard it'll be when the restraining influence of the Holy Spirit's gone and the devil is working in and through the Antichrist and it's incredible, unprecedented deception. So if someone's listening to this and hasn't trusted Christ and thinks, well, if I see the rapture happen and millions of Christians disappear, then I'll know it's true and then I'll believe the gospel. I wouldn't count on that. I think today's the day of salvation. Trust Christ today. Um, 
It is a complex statement. Uh, different Bible teachers handle it different ways. Um, you know, I, my grandfather used to teach that it meant if you don't get saved before the rapture, you won't get another chance. I don't come to that same conclusion because I don't think you, it's that clear. I don't think it's that tight um, because this phrase here doesn't exactly tell us, is it talking about those who did not receive the love of the truth before the rapture? It doesn't qualify that. So I think it's talking about in the context of the Antichrist and the tribulation, um, some people are going to perish without Christ because they didn't believe the gospel. They didn't receive. Receive is just a synonym for believe. John 1.12 says, To as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. So he's saying the same thing here that he's saying here. Uh, all should be condemned who did not believe the truth. So I, I wouldn't, again, you know, be dogmatic about it. Um, from a pragmatic perspective, I think it's going to be very difficult to believe the gospel after the rapture. But, you know, right now we know the gospel is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes it. So today's the day of salvation. Don't wait. So, uh, yes? Um, JB, with regards to Antichrist unveiling, I have two questions. You mentioned some will recognize it when the peace treaty is signed and others at the midpoint of the tribulation. The two questions are, when will the 144,000 So good question. So the two questions are, when will the 144,000 witnesses, which we'll talk about at some point, be aware that the Antichrist is who he is? I think from the beginning, because God supernaturally sets them apart and seals them from the beginning. They are the ones that start the evangelistic enterprise throughout the seven years. And that's another reason why I don't think I, why I think that people will have another opportunity to be saved because the Bible says in Revelation 7 that it will be people from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. We know the gospel is going to be preached to the uttermost parts of the earth so everyone on earth will hear it. That's because of the 144,000. They won't be the only ones sharing the gospel because after people start to get saved then they'll also evangelize much the same way we do. So I think they'll know from the beginning. And then the second one was... Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, once the abomination of desolation occurs, will peoples be less susceptible to deception? I don't think so. And, you know, again, I don't, I'm not suggesting that everyone on earth, when that happens, will recognize that he's the Antichrist. I think they'll know that he's not a nice guy. He's what? Dangerous, Dangerous and evil, and he's, he's not who they thought he was. But I think the vast majority of people on earth are going to be deceived and have no clue how this is all playing out according to God's word. But believers who've already been saved and been, you know, not required to take the mark of the beast, because that doesn't happen until the midpoint, I think at that point believers will recognize that he is the Antichrist because they'll hearken back to Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 9 about the abomination of desolation, and they'll go, oh, that's that guy. So they'll head for the hills. All right, well, we're out. Well, one last question. Yeah. How does your timing fit, though, up for the God May God war to line up at the time to clean up the, the instruments of war afterward? Because Israel, would, it's only a few months between yep. the rapture and that, so you don't have seven years. Yeah, so the question is uh, according to the Ezekiel, there's a period of time 
for to clean up all the bloodshed that results from God and Megan, the destruction and so forth. And that's the reason some people put it at as much as several years. I think uh, a good friend of mine, Israel Loken, puts it at, do you happen to know you sat under his teaching? I think three and a half or four years. That We're talking about this preparation period uh, here. Um, that could be, but again, that's speculative. Uh, it, it, for that reason alone, it might be longer, but you know, we don't know. We just really don't know. Um, I, would, I would not die on the hill of how long that is. When I say months, I don't mean two or three. I mean, it could be eight or nine months, but you know, they can clean things up uh, pretty quick, although they have trouble cleaning up accidents on I-25, but generally speaking, we can clean up things pretty quick. All right, we have to uh, shut it down at this point, so we will come back together here at 10 o'clock for the start of our service. For those of you watching by live stream, we typically kick on the live stream with a message about 10.25 to 10.30, give or take uh, five minutes, okay? Thank you, guys.